Well, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm really delighted that so many people are interested in these issues. Um, as you can see, I come from India and we have a fatal flaw which is to speak too fast. <laughs> so anytime I'm speaking too fast and you have, have trouble understanding me, please, please raise your hand and slow me down. Uh, the second is that I really don't haven't any, I mean I prepared some uh, material so that we can we can have a basis to start the discussion, uh, but you should feel free to stop anytime, ask questions, and I want to sort of emphasize that this happens everywhere, not only in forums like this, but also in scientific com uh, conferences. It is typically people from outside the field who ask the deepest questions. Uh, people in the field, I mean, what you think is being slightly embarrassing, too obvious a question, these are typically more deep and difficult questions. So don't, don't hesitate at all. So what I would tell you today about is really uh, the final issue is really going beyond Einstein. This is Einstein leaving some gates in, the, at, in Berlin actually. So we are really going beyond him. He's exiting the, skin, uh, the scene. And the meaning of this picture as to why this is going beyond Einstein, I hope will be clear at the end of the talk. Um, as you all know, from the earliest times, Civilizations have been very interested in the, nation, in the notion of space, the heavens, and time, and also how it all began. Right? How did the universe begin? How is it going to end? And so what I'm going to do is really begin with a very brief history of the evolution of these ideas through time. Then in the second small part of talk, I will tell you how Einstein changed those ideas in the last third of the talk, I'll tell you about physics beyond Einstein and how these ideas change uh, even further. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this, these thinkers. And, and what I'm trying to communicate here is the following. Many of the ideas, qualitative ideas that these people put forward are very deep. They were very smart people. It's not that we have evolved in time and become smarter. But of course, we all can always stand on the, on the shoulders of giants and do more. So there is a peculiar contrast here in the foundations of science. Namely, you see again and again some idea and you want to say, oh, but didn't so-and-so already say that? And that's interesting that so-and-so already said that. But the sense in which it was said and the ramifications of that particular statement were, are completely different today than they were at the time. So in this sense, even though it is a little bit of deja vu at times, there is enormous sense of progress. So this is just chronological. I had to start somewhere and I just had to be not too long. So I'm going to start with the 6th century BC, which by the way was a int very interesting time because you know, there was Gautama Buddha lived in um, India, Confucius lived in China, Lao Tzu lived in China, Zoroastra lived in Persia. And there were all these thinkers at about the same time. And a common theme about all the things that I'm going to tell you about, namely all these people, what they have said, there are really two issues that they were mainly concerned about. One is about the nature of time. Is time something that is objective and physical that goes on independent of us or independent of consciousness? Or is time something which is really psychological. And this is a big debate that they had all along this over many centuries and the paradigms have changed as we go along. So this is the first point about the nature of time. The second is about the nature of the beginning and end of the universe. What is the universe like? Is the universe unchanging and eternal or is it really evolving in time and changing? Did it have a finite beginning? Or has it always been there? If it has always been there, is it going in cycles? Or is it just you know, evolving from minus infinity to infinity, so to say? So these are the two questions that people are asking. And in these Buddhist thoughts, which by the way, there's very nice books now available called Abhidharma Studies, which tell you about these Buddhist thoughts about the nature of time and about their cosmology. The, 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 
Bayne idea is that the physical and absolute time is a mere concept with no inherent existence. So time is something really associated with consciousness. The, then about the second point, the idea of the universe beginning and ending belongs to relative truth. In terms of absolute truth, it is meaningless. In terms of absolute truth, the universe has always been there. And if you want to think of in terms of these relative truths, then the nature of the universe is a cyclic nature. It goes through cycles, dawning with recreation and ending with dissolution and reabsorption of the world spheres with all creatures into the absolute. So this was the general idea. Time is something that is really, we might say, in associated with consciousness or psychological. The universe is, is forever and it is cyclic. Oops. The Greek thought, so this is about 400 BC, and there were really debates about this among the leading intellectuals. Heraclitus believed that the universe is in perpetual evolution. It is really ever changing, and everything flowed without beginning or end. So the universe is infinite and in perpetual evolution. Whereas Parmenides thought that movement is incompatible with a being which is one, some absolute being which is one, which is one, continuous and eternal. So in fact, the universe is static. The universe is not really changing in time. Aristotle combined both of these ideas into what he called the cosmogenic system. And in this system, change is associated with earth and moon because of imperfections, whereas the other planets and suns and stars, they are perfect, they are immutable and they are eternal. So again, this is the whole issue about the nature of time and the, and the, and the universe. And then again, in the Greek thought, uh, this is, this is um, Plato and this is uh, Pythagoras, the last transparency we had Aristotle. Um, the idea again was that really time is cyclic in nature and Plato's in particular speculated that every art and science had been fully developed many times and then perished. So time returned to its beginning and all things restored to their original state. Pythagoras, the famous mathematician, he taught that there is an eternal recurrences of successive ages. So we feel, we see that there is a, sorry, I'm doing it backward and so it is, maybe I should just, <laughs> yeah, that's much easier, just face this way. Thank you. Good. Uh, so this is what Pythagoras thought. And actually, what we learned from Aristotle, this, form, this really formed a system of thought that dominated all Western science since the days of Aristotle until, for example, the days of Newton. When Newton was in Cambridge, as a student, what he learned was precisely the Aristotelian notions of space and time, about the universe, about the cosmogenic system. So this really was a prime um, paradigm, the prime scenario for the way that the universe is put up for more than a thousand years. Um, however, there was one descent, and that came in the fourth century AD. And this is quite interesting, as we will see. In, in St. Augustine's point of view, time is really psychological as opposed to physical, and time flows only in the soul, given that the object of expectation, namely future, becomes the object of attention, namely the present, before becoming the object of memory, the past. So time is really psychological, has to do with consciousness, and not so much to do with the external physical world. And then also time started with the world. It's not that there was time all along, but when the world, the creator created the world, the world was not created in time. It's not that creator was sitting there doing nothing for a long time and then suddenly decided, yes, now let there be the universe. But rather time was born with the universe itself. And this is a very interesting idea as we'll see in a, in a few minutes. However, by most, uh, most of the time, I mean for about more than 1,000 years, it is really the Greek thought that dominated the intellectual paradigm. So to summarize, there are really two more main models of time. 
in the Judeo-Christian and Chinese cultures, time is linear and in the Hindu, Buddhist and, and Hellenic cultures, the time is cyclic. And it is interesting that in fact, you know, you would have thought that geographical proximity would lead to similar philosophies, but that is not the case at all. You know, uh, the, India is close to China and Greece is close to the cradle of the Judeo-Christian civilization, but the ideas are quite different from each other. Well, finally, the notion of time really was crystallized and made mathematical by Isaac Newton through this publication of Principia Mathematica which came in 1686. In Newton's view, time is physical entity. It is really removed from anything like consciousness, psychology, etc. It is a physical entity and time is flowing uniformly forever. It has been there flowing from you know, minus infinity and is going to go and flow towards plus infinity. Space and time are like a stage. They are given and everything else, the planets, the stars, you and me, we are all actors in a drama we, and our stage is this space and time. So Newton postulated that there exists this physical entity which is space and time. Time is absolute and that stage is not going to be affected by us. Stage is there forever and we are the actors who act in this drama of evolution. And the important thing is that he really rescued time from the vagaries of medieval um, philosophy and he made it into precise mathematical notions from which you could calculate things. And this really changed everything. The leading Western philosophers I mean, kept, were so shocked by Principia that even leading philosophers were asking, writing letters, for example, L'Hopital, the French mathematician, writing letters to their colleagues in England to find out, is this man real? Does he sleep? Does he eat? How can he know all these things in this book? Why? Well, you see, I mean, you can, I mean, I, you, in the introduction they mentioned that I was in Oxford and in Oxford I went to these old libraries and looked up these proceedings of the Royal Society and if you look up the, the articles before about, you know, just five years before 18, uh, 1686, 1680 say, the articles in the Royal Society are always, are often of the type, well, I was riding my horse along Thames, I came to this village and in this village a calf was born with three heads and it has this characteristic which is an unusual event which is being published, which is being given in the scientific journal, the prime scientific journal, the only one at that time in, in, in Great Britain. Twenty years after Principia was written, people were writing papers calculating not the orbit of Jupiter but the orbits of satellites of Jupiter. This leap, I mean, even when I speak now, I mean, I get, I get shivers, you know, just to think about this leap from, you know, in, in, in just general thought, general un understanding of nature is just completely phenomenal. But this, this notion of space and time then really lasted for about 300 years. The universe is eternal, things are happening, and time goes from minus infinity to infinity, um, and uh, th there is nothing cyclic about it and time is physical and objective. So this is a scenario that Einstein learned when he was a student. So any questions, comments, complaints? Who was uh, Newton when he made his discovery? Newton was in his 20s when he made his discovery. So he was very, very young, right? Too young for 10 years. <laughs> um, yes, I mean I think he was uh, not yet the location professor. But very soon after this um, he, he was a student and then, you know, he had worked this out as a student and towards the end, uh, end of his period of his student when he was a fellow of this uh, Trinity College in London, uh, in Cambridge. Um, then there was this epic of um, plague and therefore uh, people had to leave and go into villages and such things. So he went back to his village and so on. And it was at that time that he sat down and wrote down the whole things. Um, but then when he came back, he was very quickly promoted, he was quickly appointed to the location chair, which is the most prestigious chair in mathematics, partly because of Newton, because New Newton held it and is today held by Stephen Hawking. Okay. For three centuries and we come to Einstein. And this is really in 1915, 
And Einstein already had this tremendously original mind. He had already created tremendously original things before the discovery of general relativity. But he thought very hard. The first ideas of general relativity occurred to him that there was something wrong with Newton. Newton's notions of gravity occurred to him in 1908. And for seven years after that, he really had the most exciting time in his life and most exerting, as you say, most tiring time in his life because he had this idea that Newton's theory of gravity is wrong. Nobody believed that he is wrong. Even the leading physicist at that time, Max Planck, the founder of quantum mechanics, he visited Einstein um, in 19, uh, 1909, or 1908 actually, and asked Einstein what he was thinking about. And when Einstein told him this, he said, well, as an older colleague and friend, let me tell you that you're wasting your time. But first of all, you will not succeed in changing Newton's theory of gravity. And even if you succeeded, nobody will believe you. Because Newton's theory had been so successful in explaining planetary motions and so on and so forth. But Einstein persisted. I'm saying this because very often I'm sort of annoyed by people say, look, you just have to have a calm, clear mind. Einstein thought of relativity while sitting in a garden, and everything became clear to him. And that's not true. I mean, Einstein slaved, slaved and slaved for, you know, for seven years. And he wrote many papers which were incorrect in between. And then finally, he came up with this theory of general relativity. And he says, during the last month, I experienced one of the most exciting and the most exacting times of my life. True enough, also one of the most successful. Already Einstein had been a kind of a world figure and done so much work. And he sent this letter to Arnold Sommerfeld. This is Sommerfeld. Sommerfeld was the person who was the first uh, professor in theoretical physics to hold a chair in Germany. That was the first chair of theoretical physics in Germany. Until then, all the chairs were held by experimentalists. And he was, he's a great physicist, but he did not quite believe that Einstein really did something so magnificent. And then he, when, he, I, when he replied, Einstein replied to his reply saying, of general theory of relativity, you will be convinced once you have studied it. Therefore, I am not going to defend it with a single word. And this is uncharacteristic of Einstein. I mean, Einstein was generally not you know, boastful or anything. In fact, and his prose is very beautiful. Even in translation in England, in English, his, his prose is very, very beautiful generally to read. But about this, he was really, really sure uh, that it was so, so beautiful. So why is it so beautiful? What happened? What Einstein discovered, realized, was that what we call the gravitational force is not really like other forces. It's really a manifestation of curved geometry. So basically what Einstein, the general theory of relativity says is the following, that until then we had space and time as being the stage on which everything happens. Of course, we are restricted by the stage. The actors cannot move off the stage. I mean, we have to be. So we are restricted by the stage, but the stage does not uh, but we cannot change the stage. I mean, we cannot act back on the stage. But what Einstein realized was that, in fact, space and time are not given to us. They are not God-given. They are not just sitting there on which things happen. But there are also physical entities, like chairs in this room, tables in this room, like me and you. Space and time itself is a physical entity. It's a very brand new idea. And why is this a brand new idea? I mean, wh why did he think this is the case? Because he realized that if you look at the gravity, what we what was called as gravitational force in by Newton, this force is universal. You see, there's only positive mass, as one says. There is no escape from gravity. We sort of hear about you know uh, gravity free, but that just means that gravity is very weak. It's, it's never you cannot switch off gravity. There's nowhere in the, in the universe you can just switch off gravity. This gravity is everywhere. Is um, is omnipresent. Is everywhere. And furthermore, the amazing thing is that. The bodies react to gravitational force in a universal way. This is the famous experiment attributed to Galileo that you can actually take two balls, one made of copper and one made of, say, steel uh, or gold, and drop them in, in a vacuum. So you remove the air. So there's no air, air force on it. The only force is gravity. And they fall exactly in the same manner. Gravity acts the same on all objects, on all bodies. So sort of it is really non-discriminating. It doesn't discriminate in anything between bodies, between their constitution, their composition, etc., etc. And this is something now verified 
to one part in 10 to the minus 15, to, to the one part in 10 to the 15, which is really one part in um, million billion, right? Um, and this is verified by looking at what happens to the moon. The moon has a core which is made up of many various metals, and all of them fall the same way, exactly the same way to one part in 15. So we know that this is true. So gravity has this unique property, and so the idea is why not encode it into the geometry? Because geometry is also universal, and geometry affects everything the same way. So maybe when we say that there is a gravitational pull, what is really happening is the following. In the solar system, for example, we've got this space. But because of sun, space itself is bent. And planets, like the Earth, are trying to really follow the straightest possible path. But the straightest possible path in this curved, bent geometry. And that appears to us, in our Newtonian terms, to be an ellipse, or typically ellipse in this case. So it appears to us to be curved. That is to say, if you imagined that really the, 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 the space was completely flat, and you observe the object, the object would be actually being accelerated. But if you imagine that the space being really curved, curved by the gravitation because of the gravitational field of the sun is, is fed into the very geometry of space in order to curve it, then the straightest path in this curved geometry appears like a curved path on, um, on, on a flat space. I mean, we all seen this. You can take an apple and you can look at a little ant cr crossing across. The ant doesn't know that it is actually curving around. The ant is trying to, trying to follow as straight as it can, right? I mean, but you know, from our three-dimensional perspective, we see that it's actually curving around. And that is what is happening to these planets. This is the qualitative idea. The miracle is that this is translated into mathematics, which is extremely beautiful, extremely rich, and reproduces all the things that we saw in Newtonian gravity, but and, and, and much more. So the gravitational field is encoded in the geometry of space and time. Space and time are curved, and the stage has now joined the troop of actors. The stage is not given once and for all. As the objects move, as the galaxies move, the curvature of space-time is changing in time. And matter then tells space-time how to bend, how to curve. And this bend space-time then tells matter how to move. And the geometry is intertwined, geometry and matter, uh, the planets, the galaxies, etc., and the curvature they cause are, in, are related to each other via Einstein's equations. So as a quick, immediate consequence of this is the following. If we now look at Einstein's equations, which are supposed to tell us how space and time changes in response to what is happening to matter. We take these equations and we feed into them one observation. And that observation is that we look around the universe, not at the level of the solar system, but much, much larger scale. And what we find is, that there is no preferred place in the universe. If you are sufficient, take a sufficiently large chunk of the universe, then th that large chunk could be anywhere. Could be there, could be there, could be there. And there is no direction either, which is preferred. Of course, if you look at the solar system, you say, how can that be? There is a preferred place where the sun is, and there is a direction pointing to the sun. No, so what you have to do is to, you have to look at many, many, many galaxies, you know, millions of galaxies, and look at that chunk of space, and another chunk of space which also contains millions of galaxies, and you find that there is no distinction between them. There is no preferred direction, and there is no preferred place. This is the ultimate sort of realization of the Copernican principle, you know, which sort of removed us from the center of the universe. This, it says that there is no center of the universe. If we do this and tell, put into Einstein's equation, what we find is that the universe must be expanding. So here is a space-time diagram, is a di diagram of the universe. Time is running vertically, and these two dimensions up here are representing space. So basically, the space is represented by a circle up here, and that is expanding as time marches in the future. Time is marching in the future. Here, so to say, this, the, the, this space is, corresponds to just one circle up here, is a surface that is representing the universe. So here the space corresponds to just one surface, little circle here. Here the circle has a bigger radius. Here the circle has even a bigger radius, and so on. So space is expanding. And this is something we actually know observationally, that in fact 
galaxies are moving away from each other, the universe is actually expanding. So, this is very good, but of course, this means that if you go back in time, then everything is coming closer and closer together. And if everything is coming closer and closer together without any bound, I mean altogether, then Einstein's equations predict that in fact all the matter in the universe would have been concentrated in the distant past in a point, but of course there the density of matter would be infinite because this is you know, one point containing all the matter in the universe. And the curvature of space-time, the bent amount, the amount by which the space-time is bent also becomes infinite. So literally what happens is that the curvature becomes so large that if you think about this as the fabric of space-time, that fabric is torn and that is depicted here by these little <coughs> lines up here. So, so under normal circumstances, space-time looks nice and continuous and you know very nice around us. You look at space and it looks continuous, but when the densities are so large, by Einstein's equation, the very fabric of space-time tears, it is violently torn apart and once it is torn apart, since Einstein's equations, Einstein's theory requires that space-time be a continuum, physics simply stops. And this is the Big Bang. Big Bang is a place from which then the universe began. There the matter density was infinite, the space-time became violently torn apart, the notion of the continuum simply broke down. And this is what we have learned from Einstein's theory. However, this is now going beyond Einstein's theory about the nature of time. So, as far as the nature of time is concerned, what we are saying is that in fact, the universe began at a finite time, that was the Big Bang and is expanding since then. However, there is a problem and the problem is that this is a paradigm like Newton's paradigm. It has been with us now almost 100 years. The theory was discovered in 1915 and we are now 1908, uh, 2008. So, it has been with us about 100 years already and this becomes a dogma and you hear you know popular talks and everywhere that universe began with the big bang, right. I mean there is a slogan, there is a new slogan just like Aristotle had a slogan, Newton had a slogan, Einstein had a, now has a slogan. Of course, none of these people had slogans, it is the people who study their theories who create this, this, this slogan. But the question is, is this really the case? So one would say, wait a minute, how can this not be the case? You just told us Einstein's equation predict this and Einstein's equation have been verified to such a great accuracy, how can this not be the case? Well, the problem is that Einstein's equations ignore quantum physics completely. When the densities become so large, you have packed so much material in a very small volume, these objects are going to interact with each other quantum mechanically. Quantum physics become more and more important, that is completely ignored by Einstein's theory. Therefore, we know that the theory is not really applicable in this domain where it says that the fabric of space-time tears. So, using a theory which we know is not applicable, taking its prediction very seriously and claiming that to be reality. And this is okay as a you know, popular general talk, but, but it is not really the case, right? I mean, we cannot take a theory which we know to be wrong and apply it in a domain where it is wrong, where it is wrong. We know it is perfectly fine when the universe is large, there the matter now, for example, the density of matter is so weak, we can forget about quantum effects at, on large scale and we can take general relativity as it is very well. But when the matter densities are very large, when the curvatures are very large, we had to bring in quantum physics into account and this is the challenge for the third millennium. So basically at what scale should we worry about it? So the idea is that we are told that space time is a continuum and we look around us and see that it works very well, I mean you know, it looks like a continuum. But Einstein taught us that geometry is on the same footing as matter. Geometry affects matter and matter affects geometry. They are on the same phys physical footing, geometry is a fundamental, is a physical reality. But we know that matter is made up of atoms. I look at this table and it looks like a continuous smooth surface to me, okay? no problem, it is completely smooth. But I look at it under an electron microscope and immediately I will see it is made up of atoms, it has an atomic structure. So is the same thing true with space, I look around 
I think space is a continuum. Obviously, the best example of continuum I have. But if I looked at space minutely, will it also display some atomic structure? Will it have some fundamental building blocks? At what scale do I have to look at? Well, there is only one length that comes up from a fundamental constant of nature, and it is about 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. This is an exceedingly small length, but it is now completely believed that it is at this scale that this, that this continuum picture would break down. Einstein's theory would be inadequate because it is based on the continuum, and therefore we need something new. The problem is that this scale is really, really, really tiny. For example, you take an elementary particle that they use in accelerators. Its radius is about 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. This is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So the proton divided by the Planck length is about 10 to the 20. Now 10 to the 20 is a huge number. So even this elementary particle is absolutely huge compared to the scale at which uh, geometry would show its atoms. Space-time would cease to be a continuum. 10 to 20 is a huge number. It is, for example, the, at the 208 rate, it is a US budget for 100 million years. So it's an absolutely huge number. And that is why we do not see anything atomic in space, even with the best accelerators that we have today. But the statement is that, in fact, at this scale, the continuum picture should break down. So where to go beyond Einstein? And one of the approaches which is founded at Penn State, which is pioneered at Penn State um, in the mid-90s, and it has been now developed by over two dozen research groups in the worldwide, or worldwide is called loop quantum gravity. And it has some key consequences. First of all, it does predict that space has atomic structure. But these are not atoms which are located in space, but rather they are one-dimensional threads. So let me give an example. Look at your shirt. For all practical purposes, it looks like a two-dimensional surface, no problem at all. But take a magnifying glass and look at it, and you will see that it is woven by one-dimensional threads, right? Threads which go this way, this way. The fundamental building blocks are really one-dimensional, but they are knit together so closely that for all practical purposes, it looks like I've got a two-dimensional surface. So in this theory, the claim is that the same is true about space itself. The fundamental building blocks or atoms are really, or excitations as we call them in physics, are really one-dimensional, but they have been tightly knit together in our everyday life around us, in the solar system and so on, to give us an illusion that we have got a continuum. Because we are not going to, just like here, unless I went and looked at the magnifying glass, I would not see that there are one-dimensional threads here. So similarly, unless I looked at a magnifying glass of Planck scale, I would not see that there are threads there. So the fundamental building blocks are one-dimensional. And here is a picture about how structures can arise. Here is sort of an embroidery out of which you see very complicated objects arising. So these would be the objects like elementary particles and so on arising because we have, we have woven the tapestry of the space-time elementary threads, uh, quantum threads, in a certain way in order to give rise to structure. So you, we use this now to say what happened to the universe. So we know that Einstein's relativity fails in extreme conditions near the Big Bang, and the space-time fabric is torn apart violently. The quantum threads fluctuate wildly. But what we have are equations governing these quantum threads. In other words, what Einstein did was to look at the shirt in terms of two-dimensional continuum, in terms of a surface which is in two dimensions in a continuum. We have equations which govern the individual threads. Now, if these individual threads are all frozen into this nice shirt here, then it looks like a continuum, two-dimensional continuum. But near the Big Bang and also inside the black holes, this continuum, is, this, these threads are torn apart. And then you have to study what happens to the threads. It is no longer, you can no longer describe what is going on by assuming that there is a smooth continuum, that there is actually a smooth shirt. So we can study, we have precise equations, which you call quantum Einstein's equation, to understand how these threads behave. And we find that, in fact, real physics does not stop at the Big Bang. And therefore, the exciting possibilities open up. What was, the, what was there before the Big Bang? Was there another classical universe? 
or where they're just these threads hanging around without any classical physics, without looking at the world looking like anything like what we had today. And then perhaps after what we call Big Bang, these threads froze together to give rise to a continuum and then, uh, and, and, and then today's physics. So this is the question that we want to ask. And the answer we have is indeed that there is a universe on the other side. So we had a picture a while ago in Einstein's theory where the universe began with the Big Bang, the fabric of the space-time here really broke down and then we have expansion there. The Big Bang up here, in this, these are all pictorial artistic depictions, Big Bang here is represented by this red thing up here. Here we had to really do physics using this fabric, uh, using these threads, not using the fabric, using the fundamental atoms of space. And then we can do that, we can solve these equations and what we find is that on the other side there was a contracting universe which collapsed. Now under normal gravity if something is collapsing, like a star is collapsing, it would actually collapse and form the singularity, the big bang, it, it, it really formed that. But because of this atoms of geometry, a new repulsive force comes into being which is completely negligible in our ordinary circumstances. This force between sun and the earth is completely negligible. But when it comes near the big bang, this force in fact dominates and it instead of this, this, this whole universe collapsing into a singularity like a big bang object, it actually is forced apart instead of universe concentrating into a single point, it is repulsed, it is forced away and it expands again into a big bang branch. So quantum geometry creates a new repulsive force which overwhelms the usual gravitational attraction and there is another branch to the universe. So let me just end by saying this, this is all very exciting because it is really leading us to new philosophical conceptual paradigms about the nature of time, about the issue of beginning, the issue of end and so on. And the spirit in which we work is really kind of very nicely summarized by in an essay by Werner Heisenberg, one of the founders of quantum mechanics. He says, a really new field of experience will always lead to crystallization of new system of scientific concepts and laws. When faced with essentially new intellectual challenges, we continually follow the example of Columbus, who possessed the courage to leave the known world in an almost insane hope of finding land beyond the sea. So in going the voyage that we have undertaken, collectively to go beyond Einstein is really in the spirit in the sense that maybe we'll get lost in the, in the, in the storms and all the ships and everything may be broken. But we are seeing some land already and this land is telling us that something very different from what Einstein's theory would predicted, has predicted could happen. Thank you. So please, questions, comments, yes. Wouldn't this carry forth to then mean that we would likely experience a big crunch somewhere down oh, the road? Okay. And isn't it currently thought that we're expanding at an ever-increasing rate? Right. So I'll first, I'll first say what the question is and then... Yeah. The question is, I don't think we need these lights uh, because... Uh, um, the question is really the following, that does this mean that there will be a kind of the universal contract in the future and will be led to a, some crunch, whereas currently we see that the universe is actually expanding. Well, it doesn't really mean that for the following reason. Um, I told you that there are these two, I'm going back a little bit to put the question in, in a bigger context, but if I'm not answered the question, please ask again. So we have these two models of the universe, one is linear model and a cyclic model. And one might say, well, what happened to them? You know, in general relativity, what happens? Well, in general relativity, the universe sort of normally starts with the Big Bang and just keeps expanding. So we got this, this linear model up here. But that is the case if the total density in the matter density in the universe is less than a certain critical value. If it is bigger than a critical value, then the universe recollapses and we have got this cyclic scenario which is up here. Now the observations that we have done today, um, were available today, they seem to suggest that in fact 
the universe is really linear, that is to say it is not going to recollapse, the density is less than the critical density, or exactly equal to the critical density, and the universe is going to expand forever. This is what Einstein's theory says. Now, if I come back to what our quantum geometry would say, it would say that there is a pre-Big Bang universe. It started, there is exactly one history. It started very large, contracted up to something, and then expands out again. So, if we take today's data, that the critical the density of the universe is, um, sorry, the density of the universe is less than critical, which is what is used, uh, which is compatible with the fact that the universe is rapidly expanding now and so on, then the statement is that no, there will not be a big crunch at the end. It is just going to keep on expanding. This branch would look more and more, in fact, exactly like what I, the current classical general relativity tells us. It is that there is an extension of this branch, which classical general relativity did not know about. So there is only one. So this could have been a crunch, but instead of that, there is a bounce. And the universe bounces up here and comes out. So there is a contracting branch and expanding branch. Now there is no further contracting branch. I mean, just, just two things on top of each other. Please. Somebody here, that's a question. My question is the same thing, but it seems if you have two forces, eventually Very, very good. Okay. So the question is, we have got two forces. One is a gravitational force which is pulling things together. And then I just say that because of this quantum geometry, the new force coming to begin, begin, which is really going to be a repulsive force. And then why doesn't this, I mean, the what happens to this repulsive force now, for example? So this was to me extremely surprising and it still am amazes me. What the equations tell you is that this repulsive force is almost zero now and also almost zero as we go back towards the Big Bang. It is only when the density becomes of the order of 10 to the 100 grams per cubic centimeter, which is to say it is about 85 orders of magnitude higher than the nuclear density. So when the density is extremely, extremely high, the repulsive force suddenly becomes important, dominates the attractive force, and dies again. So this repulsive force is not like 1 upon r, you know, like the inverse square law of Newton's gravity, etc. This repulsive force only comes into existence or is significant just, just around here where the big bounce occurs. And this is not something that we put in by hand. This is what the equations tell us. And we're still continuously amazed by this. And so are our colleagues. And we like to under, you know, we want to understand this better and better. And therefore, if you are away from this little region, then the repulsive force is completely, totally negligible. I mean, it's there, if you like. But I mean, there will be no instrument that we have today which will actually be able to measure that. But as you go back in time, it becomes more and more important. Or here, it is very, very important. And again, as you go back in time, the density here is less, the repulsive force dies. So the repulsive force becomes huge here and dies very quickly. So its, it's nature is quite different. Yeah. Well, using that as a model, is there any speculation on what the other universe origin would have been? Yeah. Or is there any evidence of any other Big Bang? Right. No. So these equations will tell you that there is no Big Bang here. That these equations will tell you that this universe started out infinite. Even Einstein's equation tell you that there are two kinds of solutions. Universe which begin with a Big Bang and expand out or universe which start out large and end their life in a big crunch. And we just happen to be living in this kind of universe rather than this kind of universe is what normally one says. In this case, the universe has two branches as you say and the statement is that this branch is like Einstein's branch of contracting universe which really began its life as being infinite diluted dilute thing, then it contracted because of ordinary gravity. Until here, if it was only our ordinary gravity, or it will crunch into a single point, making it a singularity, but quantum effects come into being and cause a bounce. This repulsive force is important here, dies off here, and then you've got the expansion up here. So there is no big branch, big another singularity or another contracting phase here at all. We just have these two phrases. Now, these are all extremely important questions about what determined the state of the universe in the, in the, in the, at the beginning, at the infinite past. We don't have answers to this. What we do is the opposite. We say, well, what does the universe look like today? And we just evolve it back in time using these new equations. 
and tell you that that's how the, the universe would have looked like in the distant past. But on the other hand, we do not have first principle to say, well, why that is happening? Why among all possible solutions, this is what is being selected? We do not know. Yeah. So are you saying that this new repulsive force at some point dies away and gravitation takes over again? Yeah. So, I mean, gravitation is always there. It is just that this new repulsive force overwhelms. I mean, gravitation is trying to push, push everything in, and the new repulsive force actually pushes everything out. But in this reg regime, in this little regime, the repulsive force is so strong compared to the ordinary gravity that it overwhelms gravity. Uh, since there is a lot of discussion about repulsive force, let me just say one more thing. Such repulsive forces of quantum origin are known to us. Yes, uh, such repulsive forces, which have their origin in quantum physics, which we did not know about in classical physics, are already known to us. Okay? So this is not completely new. Now where? If you have a star, now one might wonder, right? look at our sun. Why is the sun hanging out there? Right? Why does gravity is pulling it in? Why doesn't it just collapse, you know, become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and end its life as a black hole or something? Why? why? Well, the reason is because it is burning nuclear fuel. And when it is burning nuclear fuel, there is radiation that comes out, right? The, because of the nuclear temperature and heat and so on. And this radiation is outside, is going out, and that is creating a pressure which exactly balances the pressure of gravity and the sun is in equilibrium. And this is a story with every star that we see. The stars are in equilibrium. <laughs> I mean, normally, you would say, wait a minute, there's just gravity. Why doesn't it go? Psh? Well, it doesn't there's only attractive force. It is because of nuclear fuel. Of course, you're all very smart people. You would say, wait a minute, but what happens when the sun burns out of its nuclear fuel? <laughs> then it will eventually. Then, well, let, let, okay, let me not go into too many details. The sun is a little, uh, I mean, its story is much more complicated. So, supposing we had a star whose mass was about five times the mass of the sun. In that case, yeah, in that case, the, the star would actually start collapsing. There's no radiation, it will start collapsing. But now, a new quantum force comes into being to existence. It has to do with the so-called Fermi statistics. That is to say, you cannot put two identical particles at the same place. They like to be separated. So there's a new quantum mechanical force, which we never knew about before, quantum mechanics. And that force is a repulsive force, and that balances gravity. And we get in the sky things called neutron stars. These neutron stars are there because the gravitational force is being balanced by quantum force. And there is exactly balance, and they just are stable. There is no, no, no problem with that. Except that this repulsive force, its origin is in quantum properties of matter. And if I have a star which is 10 solar masses or 20 solar masses bigger than phi, then this repulsive force we know from detailed calculation is not strong enough. The star would collapse and would form a black hole. But this new repulsive force is coming because of quantum nature of geometry, not of matter. And this therefore has this completely unexpected behavior, namely no matter how much mass there is, it can be the whole universe. This repulsive force still overwhelms gravitational attraction in this region and sends out. So qualitatively, the idea that there are repulsive forces of quantum mechanical origin is old. But they are all associated with quantum properties of matter. This force is new because it is associated with quantum proper properties of geometry itself. So that is why it is a new arena altogether and that is why we are all excited. Please. Uh, what is dark energy and how is that um, If you look at Einstein's equation, um, in, there's basically, a, if you look at the fundamental principles which led Einstein to write down his equations, there's a certain freedom. And that freedom is to add a certain constant called cosmological constant to Einstein's equation. If then that con cosmological constant is equal to zero, there is no solution which is, which is static, the universe is expanding or contracting. But there are such sol solutions, but, but the, you can change Einstein's standard equation by adding this one term. So dark energy is, if you like, a repulsive force that is put in Einstein's equation, 
which is compatible with all the principles of nature that we know about, it could be there, and or it could, it's valid, the, the, the coefficient could be zero, therefore it may not be there. Today what we find is that in fact there is a significant dark energy, in fact most of the energy in the universe appears to be dark at this stage, that is to say this cosmological constant term is actually dominating, it is more energy in this cosmic expansion caused by this term than there is in visible or invisible matter. Now how does this fit in here? So I just showed you the simplest pictures here which have in which I have said this term equal to 0, but of course in the detailed analysis we had done we also included dark energy and we know what happens in presence of this dark energy and it is true that in presence of this dark energy it is that at, at late times uh, there is still a bounce, there is still a repulsive force that is not changed. But what is changed is really the evolution or dynamics at late times like now this dark energy exactly as in Einstein's theory is going to cause little more expansion, little more ex cosmic acceleration than there would be in absence of this dark energy. How do this theory apply to black holes? Yes, so very good. Yeah, so this theory applies to black holes because this black hole is kind of the end of time. I didn't, maybe that's a good, good thing to end with. Oh, right. <laughs> black hole is the end of time just like the Big Bang is the beginning of time. I mean, and this theory is applicable to black holes and what happens at the end of time um, is again Einstein's theory would say that space-time ends, that there is infinite density, infinite curvature and therefore I cannot say what happens beyond. What this theory tells us is that that is also an approximation which is not valid, in other words you are using a theory beyond its domain of validity and in fact as we approach the thing which is called the black hole singularity, in fact these repulsive terms again take over and then, then there is expansion. So there is also a space-time continuation. So space-time in, in loop quantum gravity or in quantum physics seems to be much larger than what Einstein led us to believe.